Welcome to Connect the Dots, a podcast produced by the Center for Progressive Reform with your host, Rob Verchik. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about climate change and toxic floodwaters. This year, CPR launched a project to help communities deal with flooding from contaminated sites in Virginia's James River Basin, which flows into the Chesapeake Bay. David Flores heads that effort, and we'll spend the first 20 minutes talking with him about the project and its relationship to climate change. In the last part of our episode, we'll hear from David Osman and Judith Walcott of Otherworld Media, who have some thoughts on an octopus stranded in a Florida parking garage. Oh, wait, not yet. First, David Flores. David is a lawyer and a policy analyst at the Center for Progressive Reform. He's an expert on climate impacts and environmental protection. Before joining CPR, David worked for eight years at an organization called Blue Water Baltimore, which is dedicated to the health of Baltimore's rivers, streams, and harbors. Here at CPR, David investigates climate impacts on water bodies all over the country. Hey, David. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. So tell me, uh, you've been working on uh, a project here at CPR called Toxic Floodwaters. For the uninitiated, can you tell me what toxic floodwaters are and uh, why we need to study them? Sure. Well, well, first, toxic floodwaters is, is a term that we coined to describe an area of research and policy that we think deserves serious attention and, and, and more work. Um, so it's not, a, it's not necessarily a new issue. Um, but it is a, a narrow issue of chemical safety and climate adaptation, um, where we're doing some new investigation and policy analysis. So in the context of our analysis, toxic floodwaters concerns toxic contamination of floodwaters. And we're using that term fairly narrowly and predictably. So toxic refers to uh, really your predominant source of to toxic contamination in our environment, which is largely industry. And floodwaters are, you know, related to its most familiar causes, uh, sea level rise, hurricane storm surge, and waterway flooding. So are we talking about uh, surfaces, uh, normally dry surfaces, I suppose, soil, dirt, pavement, and there are chemicals and other, other toxic ingredients that end up being on those surfaces. And then when you have a heavy rain, uh, or a flood of some kind, then the water disturbs that and and moves it around into the surface waters. If I got that right, yeah, absolutely. So it's I think it's two things. One, it's uh, it's areas where you do have industrial contamination on the surface. So that could be you know your brownfield site or even a superfund where you have legacy contamination that could be disturbed from flooding. But we're also concerned with uh, your brick and mortar industrial facility. Um, that may have tanks of chemicals or hazardous materials in storage um, that could be dislodged or damaged uh, or sp- and spilled or discharged during a flooding event uh, into, into floodwaters that then spread through surrounding communities. And, and what's the effect of that? The, the effect of it is that we have uncontrolled um, contamination and industrial toxic contamination in the environment um, that is uh, certainly being diluted but moved around by uh, storm floodwaters uh, in communities, um, which can be a pretty chaotic and unpredictable experience. And those toxins end up wherever the floodwaters roam. And, and where they recede, you might have 
uh, residue that is not readily apparent, right? It's not it's not visible to the naked eye. Uh, and so we're really concerned about potential exposure. So the other major aspect to our investigation are those communities that are potentially exposed to toxic contaminated floodwaters. So we're asking questions like, who are these communities? How are they situated in relation to potential sources of contamination, like individual industrial facilities? And what is the relationship to those facilities? So the really the crucial question, uh, the purpose of our of our analysis is how the public should be made more aware of and empowered to prevent and avoid this toxic contamination from flood events and related chemical spills. In particular, you're looking at the state of Virginia. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we are for the purpose of our study this year, we're focused uh, in the state of Virginia and, and more specifically um, within the James River watershed as, as our geographic area of focus, which is a really large river basin, um, pretty diverse um, in many ways uh, in, in Virginia and also a tributary to the Chesapeake Bay, which is one of our um, major areas of focus as an organization at CPR uh, on environmental policymaking. Well, and that's a big watershed, as you say. I mean, that goes, that cuts right across the entire state from from Lynchburg to Charlottesville, uh, all the way down to, to Norfolk, of course. Uh, and you said it's very diverse. Can you give me an idea of, of in what ways it's diverse? Well, Virginia's James River watershed is, is really a perfect case study um, for flooding events, for industrial facilities of all kinds and communities, diverse communities. Um, so Virginia's tidewater region, especially the Hampton Roads area, is among the most vulnerable to rising sea levels. And storm surge has become an increasing threat uh, there as hurricane storm tracks are trending northwards. And hurricane storms we're seeing are, are stronger and larger. But river flooding is, is really well known throughout the entire length of the James River from uh, the Appalachian Highlands region. Um, you know, industrialized small, you know, mountain mountain cities like Covington or Clifton Forge, uh, all the way down through Virginia's Piedmont, um, where Richmond is located. Um, there are industrial facilities throughout the watershed uh, and a diverse number of riverfront communities, including small towns with one or a handful of industrial facilities. Uh, and then, of course, the state's capital city, Richmond, where there are tens of thousands of residents and hundreds of industrial facilities. Um, and then the, the other the other sort of factor that makes the James River, I think, a great case study for our investigation and, and, and an important place to be doing this work is that Virginia's public interest in environmental communities, particularly uh, active and sophisticated, and we're really lucky to be partnered with the James River Association on our project. So it, it sounds to me that you've actually got a, a kind of a double whammy here. I mean, you have, as you say, many hundreds of, of facilities and you've got uh, toxins that have in some cases been there, I assume, uh, decades and decades uh, that can be exposed to flood water. But now with climate change, uh, we have uh, changes in water and more challenges with the water management, I suppose. I mean, I uh, down here in Louisiana, we spend a lot of time, obviously, thinking about the effects of climate change. And, and we say, uh, which is true, that in southern Louisiana, we are on the fastest sinking soil in North America. 
but the second fastest sinking soil in North America is actually the Norfolk area, uh, where, of course, there's a naval base and all kinds of other uh, federal infrastructure there. And you've got a sea level rise issue. And then, of course, in the Northeast, you've also got precipitation patterns uh, which have really increased over time, in part because of climate change. So you're going to have more water coming down out of the clouds and more water rising up uh, from the ocean. How do you how do you put all of this together? I mean, it seems like it would be hard enough trying to figure out what the toxicity levels of certain soils are in this watershed. But now you've also got to think about uh, higher precipitation patterns and sea level rise and all kinds of other uncertainties. Right. So we're going about our, our analysis in, in two ways. One is measuring the climate vulnerability of the facilities, um, which is really the sum of their exposure to climate factors and then their sensitivity to those factors. And then the other is is, is understanding uh, the vulnerability of communities to toxic floodwaters. For facilities, you're absolutely right. So we have um, all the confluence of all these different climate impacts that are challenging communities, especially places like Norfolk and Hampton Roads, um, with greater precipitation, higher river flows from upstream, greater inflow of sea levels, rising sea levels, um, and bigger and stronger storms. Um, and so we've just broken that out into into those three factors and used the um, the best available data to us um, to understand how those factors um, uh, are present geospatially, right? So we're looking at sea level rise projections that we obtained from NOAA, for example, or and we're using um, storm surge uh, projections from NOAA as well. Uh, and then additionally, we have FEMA flood zone designations, which are you know, current, though probably imperfect um, projections for where so-called 100 and 500 year storms are likely to cause river flooding. So we use these factors, we put them into our model, um, and which sort of aggregates all of the data from different regulatory data sets, right? So we're focused on identifying industrial facilities very broadly, uh, which means we're looking at data for um, pollution permitting and other regulatory programs that are administered by EPA, but also data sets that we've obtained from Virginia's regulatory agency, the Department of Environmental Quality. And then we're running these facilities, their location, uh, up against these exposure factors uh, and scoring them. Uh, so that we can generate a weighted cumulative score for facilities that allows us to rank those facilities based upon their exposure to these flooding factors or climate factors, right? The reality is that there are more than more factors that could cause a chemical spill during a storm than just flooding, right? So you have hurricane wind um, can cause uh, damage, can cause debris to fly into facilities. It can cause things to be blown over. Um, obviously, there are upsets and issues related to loss of electricity um, and other terrible things, basically, that can happen during a disaster, which can cause a chemical spill. But we've just narrowly focused on these uh, inundation or flooding factors. The whole other sort of aspect to uh, understanding the climate vulnerability of these facilities is uh, measuring or evaluating their sensitivity, right? So a um, Superfund site 
um, may fare much differently than a wastewater treatment plant to inundation in terms of uh, the types of materials or toxic uh, hazardous materials on, that are contained on site and how they are stored or managed um, can vary you know, tremendously between different types of sites. And so inundation will, will have different effects um, depending on really the layout and operation of individual sites. I suppose then, too, another measure of the risk is uh, who is around to be exposed to it, right? Whether we're talking about uh, human communities or wildlife or, or waterways that, that will go somewhere else. How are you evaluating the exposure to, to people? Well, we have to be really careful. Um, you know, I'll say first that we're in no position in terms of our expertise or, or resources to produce a, 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 you know, I think a risk assessment um, in the conventional sense. But I think we're able to use existing data to uh, identify the potential vulnerability of communities, again, based upon exposure and sensitivity. So for exposure, um, that you could create an incredibly sophisticated model that relies upon um, geographic and hydrological uh, data to determine how floodwaters may operate in a given area during a certain projected storm or flooding event, but that's beyond our capacity. So instead, we're really looking at proximity um, as well as you know, where communities are located upstream and downstream of potential sources, these industrial facilities. You're listening to CPR's Connect the Dots. We'll return after a short break. I'm CPR policy analyst Katie Tracy. I've been researching workplace fatalities that have resulted in criminal charges being filed against the people and companies responsible. Visit CPR's website today and search for our Crimes Against Workers database to learn how forward-thinking prosecutors from around the country are holding people accountable when a worker's life is cut short. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with David Flores about climate change and toxic floodwaters. Is the outcome then, if, if I were in a community that were near a place that you found to be, uh, let's say, uh, unduly exposed to toxins, uh, that were vulnerable to floodwaters, then I could take a look at the information that eventually we're going to put together uh, on, on a website or, or uh, in some other form uh, that I as a community member could look at that and I could say, oh, there's a red flag. That's something that I need to investigate uh, 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 along with city officials or people in my neighborhood community group or, or whatever. This would be a way of aggregating information so that people could act on it. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. And so the other part of our analysis is understanding um, how communities are themselves exposed to those same flooding factors, right? So I think it stands um, to, to, to presume that there is a good likelihood that a community located in the same, um, you know, the same census tract, for example, uh, as a as a as an industrial facility that's exposed to, let's say, river flooding, right? It's in a FEMA designated flood zone. If that residential community is also located in that FEMA flood zone and and also maybe downstream of that facility, uh, there's a, there is a a, a potential um, 
for them to become exposed if there's a chemical spill uh, at that facility upstream. Well, and you know, we have seen this uh, many times, of course. This isn't a, a hypothetical situation, as, as, I, as I know you have stressed, uh, you've stressed before. Uh, in, during Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans, we, we had several oil spills and uh, an inundation of a Superfund site that had been a landfill before that, and, uh, and a lot of toxic floodwaters in, in that brew uh, in, in New Orleans after, after the levee breaks. And uh, more recently, just last September in, in Houston, Texas, we had uh, news of similar kinds of floods that moved toxic substances into neighborhoods and and put people at risk. And I know this has happened in Florida and 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 Puerto Rico is is another, of course, very large example of this kind of danger. Are the risks that you're finding in Virginia are they similar to the risks that uh, that I just described in New Orleans or, or Puerto Rico, uh, or are there things that that set the Virginia region apart that you need to pay attention to? I think largely the risks are, are very similar. Um, there aren't, we certainly haven't found any major differences at this point in our analysis. Um, as far as response to this issue, um, you know, I think that where there are gaps in um, hurricane or, or flood response um, at the national level, those impacts will be felt, um, you know, sort of wherever there are these storm events, um, whether that's in Virginia um, or in Texas. Uh, certainly there are special cases where you have, um, I think in Puerto Rico, uh, less federal resources. Um, but for the most part, what we've found are during storm events, uh, regulatory agencies uh, are not either fully equipped or directed to identify and uh, report publicly and measure these toxic spill events. I think the other concern is after these events, um, once the floodwaters recede, where is there still toxic contamination and what entities, uh, whether they're federal or state or community, are responsible or able to go in and measure levels of contamination, uh, remediate that contamination, and also notify the public on how they should protect themselves. Are there things you think that, uh, that Congress could do if it were willing to address some of the challenges? that you are investigating in Virginia that might help the entire country? What, what would be on your legislative agenda if, if you were uh, recommending a course of action to Congress? So I think, there are, I think there are two ways sort of conceptually to approach this issue at the federal level. One is um, to consider the history, um, sort of the existing regulatory framework we have. Um, where the federal government has been engaged historically on in flood control uh, and, of course, regulation of industrial pollution, but at the same time um, has only encouraged uh, industrialization in floodplains and flood-prone areas. And so it really demands, a, um, I think, a, a total revisioning of, uh, of flood control and environmental pollution regulation. Uh, and one that is not, you know, exclusive to this issue of toxic floodwaters, right? We have uh, residential communities that have been incentivized to remain or build in flood-prone areas because of programs and, uh, um, and policies uh, related to flood insurance, for example. 
um, or federal flood control projects, right? So I think there's there there's a necessary uh, sort of analysis that needs to follow the sort of the um, the impasse between federal flood control and environmental uh, regulation. I think the other sort of uh, conceptual approach to addressing this issue, again, not exclusive to toxic floodwaters, uh, sort of concerns three areas of uh, disaster um, planning or climate adaptation. Uh, one is prevention, uh, another is mitigation, uh, and, and then the third is recovery. Um, and so uh, I think in looking at um, flood control, but especially environmental regulation policy, uh, there is not very much coordination, not very much sophistication to um, efforts to um, prevent chemical spills from storm events uh, or, or flooding, right? There's some particular programs or provisions for some area of federal uh, environmental regulation, but nothing comprehensive. So David, you and I are both lawyers, so I have to ask you a question about legal liability. It seems to me that there might be some facilities that that are actually exposed um, to, to litigation or, or, or to uh, legal liability as a result of this. Back in, in, in 2017, the Conservation Law Foundation was involved in a lawsuit against ExxonMobil. Uh, Conservation Law Foundation had alleged that ExxonMobil had not adequately protected an oil terminal in Everett, Massachusetts. Uh, from the impacts of climate change, which included flooding. And uh, last time I checked, that that case is moving forward through the courts. Uh, do you think that there is uh, uh, that there's the potential for for liability uh, for some of these facilities? Absolutely. So I think you know those cases in, in, in Conservation Law Foundation has a, I think a couple of cases that are live right now, looking at sort of a prospective uh, chemical disaster because of uh, climate impacts, future climate impacts. Um, uh, there's another case actually in the James River uh, coal ash facility down in Hampton Roads that it will be exposed to rising sea levels. Uh, and I believe that case is still live as well. So I think there's real potential uh, in those cases. I think they're very necessary um, sort of area of liability and um, uh, that, that, that must be probed um, by public interest groups. Um, but let's also not forget that you know, these incidents are occurring all the time, right? Um, we have big storm events like a Hurricane Harvey that garner a lot of media attention, but there are flooding events um, that occur all the time throughout the country where there are chemical spills um, of all, all types and magnitudes. And so the other liability um, uh, lawsuit that I think we need to be concerned with uh, understanding and, and supporting are, are for those uh, historic events and for the communities that have actually been harmed by those chemical spills. Well, David, I've really enjoyed hearing about this project. It seems I learn so much when I talk to you about the work you're doing because it always involves a number of things. In this case, climate change and environmental justice, mapping, uh, the information that the federal government supplies. For different communities. And uh, I know we'll all be looking forward to see the results of your project um, as it develops. Uh, thanks so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you, Rob. This has been great. Next up, something a little different for us at CPR. Climate change is a serious issue, but that doesn't mean that all conversations about it have to be dark or cheerless. 
In fact, if you want more people to care about it, we think that you need to use all your emotions. That's why we asked some friends of ours in the arts and entertainment field to put together an op-ed cum soundscape to talk to you about the elephant in the living room. Or rather, as they say, the octopus in the parking garage. Here's David Osman of Firesign Theater fame. Hey, the fans are legion, but if you don't know, Google it. And David's wife, the writer and producer, Judith Walcott. Let's talk about the octopus in the parking garage. A live octopus? Mm-hmm. Which garage? Is it still there? Stay with us. We'll take your questions in order. Hmm. What about the elephant in the room? President Donald Trump? Well, he does play an important role here, but we'll get to him later. Now, you may be wondering whether there really was an octopus in a parking garage. Yes, there was, and it was quite alive. November 2016, the Miami Herald reported a live octopus had been found in a flooded parking garage at the Mirador Condominium Complex, along with a number of fish. This was, well, to say the least, a surprise. Now, you will be relieved to learn that the security staff filled a bucket with salt water and transported the lively cephalopod back to the sea. What was an octopus doing in a parking garage? Well, these luxury condos, their parking facilities, all their drainage pipes, they're near the ocean. Oh, those pipes feed runoff into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And, ooh, they used to be well above sea level. Uh-huh, but sea level is rising, and so... The pipes are flooding during very high tides. And no one thought to install an octopus screen on the drain zone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Events like this are part of a general pattern of increased flooding in South Florida, which threatens everything from drinking water supplies... to billions of dollars worth of shoreline property, which could go down the... Uh... Unless something is done. Why are floods increasing? Well, the aforementioned sea level rise which is caused by climate change. Real estate values are already beginning to suffer. According to the New York Times, quote, homeowners across the nation are slowly growing wary of buying property in areas most vulnerable to the effects of climate change, unquote. This brings us back to the elephant in the room. President Trump has called climate change a bunch of bunk, even as he claims to keep an open mind. It's a big hoax. I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming, unless somebody can prove something to me. Changing minds on climate change is a heavy lift. But we think it's easier to enlist support by focusing on observable examples like our misplaced octopus. And then open a conversation on how we might prepare for such impacts with higher pipes, broader setbacks, or other kinds of building restrictions. Yeah, once you get people engaged in a conversation about values they share, research shows they become more amenable to the more difficult conversations about restricting carbon emissions. In 2010, four South Florida counties formed a regional compact to prepare for climate change impacts together. Efforts like these across the nation will save lives and livelihoods along with tens of billions of dollars. In short, the octopus in the parking garage is a wake-up call about the need to face the reality of climate change. This call 
is nonpartisan. Yeah, after all, the current presidential retreat, Mar-a-Lago, is on the Florida coast, too. Ooh, watch out, Mr. President. Here come the octopi. It's About the Octopus is based on the op-ed written by Daniel Farber, professor at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. And Robert Verchick, professor at Loyola University, New Orleans College of Law. Produced for the Center for Progressive Reform and the Center for Environmental Law at Loyola University, New Orleans, at the studios of the Jack Straw Cultural Center, Seattle. By Otherworld Media, David Osman and Judith Walcott. And how do you follow that? You've been listening to CPR's Connect the Dots. I'm Rob Verchik. A big thanks to our guest, David Flores. And for the op-ed stylings of David Osman and Judith Walcott. Our theme music is written and performed by Lobo Loco. And that pretty ukulele you heard earlier is from Mon Plaisir. Take care. You've been listening to Connect the Dots podcast by the Center for Progressive Reform. We're a legal policy center helping to build healthy communities, safe workplaces, and a more resilient planet. Check us out and subscribe to our podcast by visiting our website, www.progressivereform.org. Thanks. See you there.